Hello, everybody. Um, it's so nice to be with you here today. For those of you that don't know me, my name is Dan. I'm part of the senior leadership here at Lift Church, and I'm super excited just to be able to get into the Word and, and uh, talk about Jesus with you guys today. So for those of you that might be a little bit newer, um, something we've been doing over the last, I don't know, like year and a half, has been going through the book of Mark. Um, we've taken like a bunch of like random sabbaticals from it, some breaks, but it's been like a long time going through the book. It's, it's been great. Um, one of the beautiful things about this series has been we've been able to get like really deep looks at the small things that Jesus does um, and really be able to just dive deep. But as much as there's the benefit of being able to dive really deep, there's also uh, a potential kind of con or potential downfall, which is sometimes we can be so focused on the individual pieces that we can miss kind of like the larger story. Um, especially in narrative, what comes before and afterwards is, is often really important to understand kind of what's going through. Um, and so we're going to do a little bit of a recap today, not just for today, but I'm actually going to do a recap over like everything that's happened, hopefully set up the rest of this series. The idea being is that like, I don't want you guys going forward and kind of forgetting what's come back. Um, we don't want to start you at like the third last episode of a season of a TV show. Um, hopping in at like the last Harry Potter movie, it, it's probably don't know what's going on if that's your first one watching. And so we're going to do a big recap, kind of get us all caught up, and then we'll kind of go on from there. So Mark is focusing on Jesus's life. We all kind of know that. And it's a very kind of like action packed. It's actually the shortest of all the gospels. Now, that being said, a significant portion of Mark, uh, it's actually six out of 16, almost half of the entire book focuses on the last week of Jesus' life. It's often called Passion Week, and we just sort of went through that recently as well. And so this week starts in chapter 11 when Jesus enters Jerusalem, and it kind of goes through. He gets up to all sorts of craziness when he's in Jerusalem. Um, like he, there's miracles, he's upsetting people, he's telling parables, he's cursing trees. He, he just does a lot while he's here. Um, and so he's here again for the very specific reason. The reason him and all the disciples kind of came to Jerusalem was to celebrate Passover. Now Passover, we're going to get into a ton of detail, hopefully in the next coming weeks, because there's a ton of symbolism and, uh, and a ton of kind of callbacks and symbolism that actually happens in Jesus' last days. But the short version is that Passover was a Jewish celebration um, that celebrated when God led the Israelites out of Egypt. Um, a lot more complicated than that. There's a lot of nuance, but that's the main kind of piece here. And so um, the passage um, today starts with, in Mark 12, kind of them actually starting the Passover feast. Um, so that's sort of why he's here. That's why he's in Jerusalem. That's sort of where we've come to in Mark and then the specific immediate context of this, just before this, at the beginning of chapter 14, um, we had a story of Jesus kind of walking down and a woman who broke a jar and kind of spilled out the contents of, of this perfume. And with that, it was to, to worship Jesus. Um, Annie actually preached a great sermon on that back in, I'm going to say February. I'm getting a nod. It was February. Um, and so highly recommend, if you don't remember it, go back, watch that. It's phenomenal. But the end of that passage and what was directly connecting in today's passage was this last little bit where Judas, um, who was one of the 12 disciples, got really kind of upset about this. He was the money guy. He thought it was a big waste. And this was sort of the proverbial straw that broke the camel's back. 
And so he then, at the end of that passage, went and arranged with some of the Pharisees, the religious leaders, to sell out Jesus. And so the context that we have here is Judas has gone to sell out Jesus and were ready to start the Passover feast, which is the whole reason the disciples were here. And that sets up today. Um, you know that it's actually the first day of Passover in the passage from that line in verse 12. And it says, um, they eat uh, unleavened bread, like the day that they eat unleavened bread. That's a part of the Passover feast. Um, don't really need to worry about the details there. It makes sense in context. We eat turkey at Christmas. They eat unleavened bread at Passover. And so that's how we kind of clue into the start here. And so the passage today is separated into three kind of distinct segments. The first is Jesus actually getting the disciples to go and get ready for Passover. Um, you would have heard, um, I'm not sure who actually read the passage today, but you would have heard the passage read, and it's sort of where Jesus is like, hey, go get it, meets the person, they go in the prepare room. That was verses 12 to 16. The second section is verses kind of 17 to 21, where Jesus kind of talks about, hey, one of y'all is going to betray me, and everybody's like, oh, no, it's not me, is it? And there's that sort of uh, little climactic moment. And then it kind of moves on very quickly, um, almost jarringly so, like that doesn't get resolved, and just jumps right into this idea where it's sort of the climax of the meal, where the Last Supper, communion, um, or the Eucharist is, is kind of done. And so that's sort of the layout of today's passage, and it seems sort of like three kind of disjointed passages. It seems kind of whiplashy, you're kind of going one and then to the other. Things don't seem to really get resolved. Um, and so when I was sitting there preparing, there was a number of different leads and, and thoughts that I had about wh what is this passage telling me? What is this telling us about, about Jesus? And there was a number of different ways I, I was going to go. I thought about talking about like how he clinged to money. I thought about going in different directions. But I just couldn't get away from one thought when I was reading this passage. And the thing that just really stood out to me was Jesus' love. And so fundamentally, that's going to be kind of the thesis of this sermon, of just how incredible Jesus' love is, how much he loves us. And the end, my prayer is going to be that hopefully we can learn to love Jesus a little bit more, love each other a little bit more, and love the lost a little bit more. And so the first thing we're going to talk about with Jesus' love is how Jesus' love is unconditional. And so we're going to jump in, first starting to look at Jesus when he talks about the person who's going to betray him. And so the disciples are asking, like, oh, is it going to be me? Is it going to be me? And then Jesus sort of responds in this way. He said to them, it's one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread in the bowl with me. For the Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man by whom the, the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for him if he had not been born. Now, at first glance, this seems kind of harsh. It seems like Jesus is kind of taking a, a hard stance here. But it's important for us to look at what's happening around this passage. And so I was reading that, and it was like, okay, this is kind of harsh. Um, but then sort of this question was nagging at me. Jesus knows Judas is betraying him. We, we see that in the text, and we know that he knows it's specifically Judas. John's recounting of the story, he kind of goes right up to Judas and says, like, yeah, you're going to go do this, and you can go and, and do it. And Jesus that's in John will actually say, hey, it's now time. Go do what you have planned. So the question is, why is Judas there? If Jesus knows that Judas is going to betray him, in fact, he's going to tell Judas to go and, and kind of hurry it up a little bit, 
why is Jesus, why is Judas there then? Why didn't Jesus have that conversation with him beforehand? See, this is Jesus's last meal on earth. Like imagine the emotions he would have been feeling knowing that this is, this is the last time he's going to have food. It actually says it again in John. John has this conversation in significant detail, but it talks about how he just urgently loved the disciples and how he really wanted to have this moment with them. This is one of the most intensely personal, intensely emotional moments of Jesus's entire life. And he invites the person going to betray him. He invites Judas. Like, can we appreciate just how radical and, and strange and foreign that is? A lot of you guys have heard us talk about uh, the missionary appointment recently. Well, one of the things we talked about in, when we were kind of talking to people about the missionary appointment is this kind of idea of what encapsulates the idea of the missionary to one of our campuses. And we use this idea of a birthday party about how birthday parties are typically kind of a personal time where it's like you and the gang and it's your, your close-knit friends. And how our, our hope for missionaries is not just to invite like their close friends, but actually their disciples and their disciples' friends and, and maybe even like some people that they don't even know or the lost. And it's just an, it's an open home to invite into that moment. And, and the reason we, we thought it was such an apt analogy is because that's a hard ask. Like we didn't ask those things lightly. And we understand that that's a really, really hard call to put out to our church. And for our missionaries who are choosing to step up, like, thank you. You guys are incredible. But it's, it's, it was a hard ask even for us to ask of people of, hey, you know what? During your private personal moments, include people, include the lost. I feel like the last meal you're ever going to have before you're tortured and then hung on a cross it's probably a little bit more personal of a moment than, uh, than a birthday party. I feel like your betrayer, a person you had invested three years of your life directly into, turning around and selling you for some silver, is a little bit harder of an ask than, than inviting some people you're discipling or uh, one degree of separation away. And I don't do this to kind of um, speak down to anybody in our church. It's incredible what we do in our church. But instead, just to show how incredible Jesus' love is. That he was like, yeah, I want Judas, the person betray me. I still love him so much that I want him at that table. The phrase that we heard, this idea of it, like dipping in the bread with me, it's meant to illustrate how close and personal they were. It's sort of like, it's the person stealing my last fry. Like, oh, like Judas was somebody that Jesus was, was, was going to give his last fry to. And not only that, but there's more that happens in this conversation. Again, if we, if we go to John, Jesus washed the disciples' feet right before this. So Jesus, knowing that he was going to go and wash and serve people, that he's going to go and share this intimate moment, chose to invite his betrayer to that moment. He could have called Judas up ahead of time. He could have said, hey, do what you're going to go do, and then had a nice dinner with his loyal disciples, wash his, his loyal disciples' feet. But he didn't. He included Judas. He invited Judas. Because his love was unconditional. 
even those who could and, and should probably be considered his enemy, he invited. And even that last line that sounds so harsh actually isn't a line spoken in anger, but actually in sadness. Verse 21, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for him if he had not been born. Woe is not a word we use very often. Um, it can have multiple meanings. And to be honest, whenever I read it, I always think of like a cartoon movie villain, like, woe be to those who stand in my way, like that, that sort of thing. But this is a lot more of like a Romeo and Juliet. Never was a tale of more woe than of Rome, Juliet and her Romeo, where it's, it's supposed to depict sadness. It's supposed to depict grief and loss. That's what this word um, in the original language is supposed to depict. Jesus was sad for Judas. He was heartbroken for Judas. Jesus' love was unconditional, even when towards the one that would betray him. He, his heart broke for him. His heart bled for him. And this is great for us, because like, fundamentally, we, we all betray him. Like, not as climactic of a way, but, but we are all choosing other things over Jesus constantly. Everyone else at that table, everyone watching this, myself, we, we all turn away from Jesus. But Jesus still loves us unconditionally. He still loves you. He still loves me. Romans uh, 8, 38 and 39, it talks about how I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from that unconditional, incredible love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Nothing you can do can separate you from the love of God. It's unconditional. And so this is the first thing that I noticed when I was reading it, is this idea of just how incredible Jesus' love is, even for Judas in that moment. And my prayer for you and myself is that we can start to emulate that. To be honest, church, I, especially over the last little bit, have been noticing myself getting super frustrated so easily with so many people. It's so easy to, to get angry, and especially in, in the current climate we're in and all the things changing, I, I get it, church. And it's so easy to villainize people, to be like, oh, they're, they're the problem. And to kind of like set your life in antagonism to a certain thing because it's, it's cathartic. Like not really, but it feels cathartic in the moment. But church, my prayer for myself is to love those people, those people that frustrate me, those people that aggravate me, to love them like Jesus would love them, to view them like Jesus would love them. Because he, he loves me, even though I don't deserve it. And so that kind of leads me to the next piece of what I saw about Jesus' love in this passage. So Jesus' love is unconditional, but Jesus' love is unfair. And this is good news. We often think of the word unfair as a, as a bad thing. Um, we're, we're raised to think that fairness is some sort of virtue to be upheld. But, but frankly, that's not really biblical. I used to deeply care about fairness, and the, me caring so much about fairness above all else is why I used to hate so many of Jesus' parables. They're all unfair, basically. The parable of the vineyard workers in Matthew 20, hated it, super unfair. 
It sucked. The prodigal son loathed entirely. And like part of that was my own relationship with my brother, but like, frankly, part of it was just pride. We see time and time again, Jesus, all of Jesus' parables and the things Jesus does is unfair because grace fundamentally is unfair. Jesus' love is unfair and it's the best news ever because nobody here deserves it. Romans 3.23, all have sinned, all fall short of the glory of God. We don't deserve God's love, but we're given it. Even though you and I have separated ourselves from God, God still loves us. And that enough is worthy of all the worship we can muster. That alone should be all we need. But I guess God ascribes to the, the go big or go home philosophy because we're going to look at today's passage and see how not just the, his love, but the entire design of salvation from the very beginning was fundamentally unfair in, in our favor. Let's hop over to verse 22. As they were eating, he took the bread, blessed and broke it, gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. And he took the cup and after giving thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank from it. He said to them, this is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. Truly I tell you, I'll no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. So many of us would be familiar. This is what we kind of call communion. Some faiths call it, uh, not traditions rather, call it the Eucharist. Um, in other books, Jesus goes and says, hey, like whenever you do this, do it in remembrance of me. And so fundamentally the point of communion, the point of what we do there is to, to remember and reflect on what Jesus did. And we can say that and we can kind of move on, but I think it's important for us to take a moment and understand that like, hey, let's, let's just take a step back from the, our context and look at this for a second. As a complete aside, I think it's important for us to just look at verse 24 and read the blood of the covenant and be like, you know what? To somebody that's new to Christianity, that would be weird. That sounds weird. There's plenty kind of Christianese that we go through and we sing about being washed in the blood that sounds real creepy out of context. And so I think it's important to understand how we're being heard. But I think it's also important that we take this, this word, like, what is a covenant? And actually talk and kind of demystify what this word is. Quite frankly, when I hear the word covenant, I think of like two main things. I think of the bad guys from Halo, and I think of like the Jim Carrey movie, Yes Man, or the creepy kind of like cult leader guy runs up to J Jim Carrey and is like, I would like to make a covenant, Henry. Or, or whatever his name is. Those both don't sound very good. And that is what most people would think of when they hear the word covenant. And we use this language in, in Lift Church. We, talk, we have a fully alive covenant. We have a missionary covenant. But I think we can use the word so much and like not really take time to unpack, hey, this is what the word covenant means. And so if you want to get like a, a good kind of look, the Bible Project has a phenomenal video. It, it'll explain it better than I will. Um, so highly recommend go checking that out. But, but fundamentally, for those of you that aren't going to do homework like that, um, I do kind of want to take some time and explain it. And so a covenant is when two sides come together and make promises and commitments. And so these aren't like contractual obligations, but rather deep personal commitments of life and heart and promises of what they will actually do. So that's all it really means is this agreement of commitment and promise. That's fundamentally what it is. And so when you hear things about like the old covenant or the new covenant, 
what we're talking about is a commitment and promise that God made to man. Sometimes it was an individual man, sometimes it was the nation of Israel, but it was always meant to be bigger towards all of mankind. And so in the Old Testament, before Jesus was around, God specifically made four covenants. One with Abraham, one with Noah, sorry, Noah first. Noah was a little bit older than Abraham. Noah, Abraham, Moses, and the Israelites, and David. And though these weren't actually separate promises, but rather each one kind of built on the last, like scaffolding or like a Russian nesting doll, that they just sort of got bigger and, and a little bit more detailed. And so God promised multiplicity of different things. God promised, and in return, God asked for us to promise and, and give our commitments as well. And the short story about all the covenants is that fundamentally, we broke the covenant every single time. God never failed, but every single time, man did. And so God was sort of left in a place where God is pure and holy and perfect. He can't break his word. And so he couldn't just ignore our rejection, our breaking of the covenant. And that's where his unfair, incredible love was so great that he found another way to actually fulfill these covenants. It's not a new plan. It was a plan from the beginning. We read about it all the way back in Genesis 3.15. And like, I, just, I don't want this to seem reductionistic, reductionistic, but I just, I love it because in a very real way, God's love is just so all-encompassing and unconditional and unfair that he basically gamed the system of these covenants. See, human beings, mankind, we could not fulfill our end of the covenant. And so God went and sent his son to become fully human, fully God and fully human. And so Jesus could go, and Jesus, being that fully God and fully human, he was able to uptake our end of the bargain. Every single time that we would break it, Jesus was able to fulfill humanity's end of these promises, of these commitments, of these covenants. And so God was able to fulfill his promises, and Jesus was able to fulfill ours. Even though we couldn't, like, it's... I hope you're with me. I just, I love this so much and I get so excited about this. This is like, God broke the system and it's so unfair and it's clever. And I just, I love it so much and it makes me really excited. But to like illustrate how unfair it was, the most kind of like apt analogy I could think of was like if you're going to a, a like some sort of store and you're like checking out and you're trying to buy some item and you just don't have enough money. And the tiller's like, oh, it's fine. We'll just take it from that register over there. And you're like, well, that doesn't work. It's still your money, I guess. It's like, oh, no, no, it's fine. I'm still getting the money. Like, we're good. I'll just take it from that register. We'll pay for it that way. Like, we all sitting here are like, yeah, that fundamentally doesn't make sense. And yet, God does it for us. Because he so desired relationship with us. He so desired relationship with you that he went and found this awesome workaround that he designed from the beginning. The entire point of Jesus coming was to ensure that we don't get what's fair. Instead, that we can be restored into relationship with him. 
into, into covenant and into commitment. That he could come and fulfill the promises that we couldn't. It's cool. So, Jesus' love is unconditional. It's unfair. And it's intentional. So just the idea that, that God and Jesus, that, that, that it was planned from the beginning for him to go kind of like step in there and for it to sort of like work in this unfair way. Just that even plan that it was baked in from the very beginning, that would be enough to know that his love is extremely intentional. Intentional in his planning on how he's going to love us. But well, we don't have to stop there either. When we look at this passage, I, I, and whenever I kind of do when reading narrative, is I try to put myself into scenes and try to like imagine what it would be like to be in that moment, to try to get different perspectives and see, like, hey, what's weird? And so when I was reading this and thinking about, especially that middle section where Jesus is like, oh, yeah, somebody's going to betray me, and then, hey, this body is mine for the break for you. Um, I was just imagining being like in a meeting with the senior leadership team and us kind of all around at the Walders for dinner. And then Robin kind of like just taking a step back from the grill and being like, hey guys, one of you is going to betray me. And I was like, okay, that's a weird moment. And the disciples probably felt awkward about things in that moment. And so I was like, okay, why, why, would, Jesus, why would Jesus say that? Why would he do this? Clearly it wasn't so that like he could convince people to stop it. Like if I were to go and tell, hey, somebody's going to betray me, it would likely be to stop the betrayal from happening. But that easily we can see and read that wasn't Jesus' plan. Uh, we don't really see a whole lot of just like Jesus accidentally saying things or emotional outbursts either. And so the only conclusion that I can come to is that he was trying to teach the disciples something. He was trying to show the disciples that his love is unconditional. Even though they wouldn't realize it probably in that moment, looking back, they would realize, hey, Jesus washed Judas's feet. Jesus invited Judas, even though he knew that Judas was going to betray him. Jesus was showing them, and he was teaching them a lesson they would learn way later, that they are to love even those that would betray them. That as most of the disciples were martyred, they should love the people martyring them. It's incredible. Jesus isn't just loving in that moment of, of inviting Judas in, but he's also loving and teaching and showing the disciples that they are to love unconditionally as well. There's an intentionality. He's not afraid of appearing conceited or the situation being awkward. He shares because this is the best thing for them, for the disciples. Something we talk a lot about with discipleship is we talk about these four components. Inviting, modeling, training, and empowering. Fundamentally, what Jesus is doing in this moment is he's modeling, and to a degree, he's training them as well. He's intentionally taking this moment, one of the most intensely personal moments of his life, and using it for the disciples' benefit to show them something. And the reason why I would do this is because fundamentally, without modeling, without training, discipleship breaks down. If you're discipling somebody without you modeling something for them, discipleship will break down. 
if you want to see our disciples grow in radical generosity, we need to model that for them. We can't just be generous in secret and hide it. Now, I picked this one because some people, it's sort of a little contentious thing, because some people, well, no, they're like, no, I, I need to keep my generosity secret. Like Jesus says, like, like, don't let the left hand know what the right hand is doing. And, and I hear this, but fundamentally, church, we need to understand that there is a difference between boasting and inviting somebody in to disciple them. There's a difference between bragging selfishly and, and discipling and modeling. There's a difference between going on a short-term mission trip and making sure you take a bunch of selfies so that everybody can know what a good colonial savior you are and going and inviting your disciples into a moment where you're trying to make a decision about how you're going to be generous. Like these things are fundamentally different, and the difference is where the heart is. One is pointed at me, and one is fundamentally caring about others. Without modeling, discipleship breaks down. And so to give a model for how I model radical generosity, um, recently we heard uh, Tara, I believe it was on our town hall, Tara kind of made a call to the church of, hey, you know what, you're getting your tax returns back, why don't you consider giving 33% or a third of that to the church? Gift, make that a gift. Practice radical generosity in that way. And so I heard that, and I went to the guys living in my house, and I kind of like was open and honest with them. I was like, hey guys, I was originally thinking of like separating my tax return into like these categories and putting like this much here and giving this much to the church and everything. And I was like, what I'm thinking now because of this is what if I go and take this amount and put it into the church and then take this amount instead and like make sure I can give this away to some other people that just need it and I'll, I'll arrange it that way. And I invited them into figuring out those percentages, figuring out where these different things were going. It wasn't this big deal. I wasn't like posting it everywhere. I wasn't talking to everybody about it, but I was inviting the people that I'm caring for and discipling into that decision and showing them how my thought process was in that moment. See, we need to model and train our disciples as to what we want to see in them. Now that could appear this sort of like heavy weight, like, oh, I need to be perfect if my disciples are going to grow. But th that's, that's not the case either, because if we want to see transformation in our disciples, we don't need to model somebody who's already transformed, but we actually need to model transformation itself. And that means we need to be open and honest when, when we do fail and when, when we're not perfect so that people can watch as Jesus works in our heart because we're modeling transformation. So let's go back to that same situation. Yeah, I can sit here and be like, oh, look at me. I modeled um, being generous. Uh, and like I invited them in and it was a great moment. But, but fundamentally, I also dropped the ball there. Because what I can tell you is I didn't do is I didn't ask them how they were being generous. I didn't ask them what they were doing with their tax returns. Fundamentally, I, I can get scared and, and trepidatious sometimes in trying to lead the people in, in my house. I'm worried about becoming too demanding or dictatorial. And so even though I thought in that moment, I, I took my foot off the gas and, and I, didn't, I didn't ask them. And I'm saying this to you because like, I'm going to need to go and now do this and now a bunch of you guys are going to keep me accountable. But like, and even in this moment, I, I had tension. It's like, oh, do I like, be honest about this thing? It was a good example, but like, do I be honest about how like, I dropped the second half of it? 
And I was like, yeah, of course, I, I, like, I have to. And it's not for my benefit. It's, it's because I want to show you, church, that you can, you can be open and honest and that you can grow and you can take that next step. What's up, guys? Um, Jesus, in this moment, was modeling for his disciples. He was modeling what it looks like to love somebody that's going to hurt you. He was modeling what it means to, to love unconditionally. And he was doing this intentionally for the, the disciples. He was doing it by extension for, for the church that would come afterwards. He was doing it for me. He was doing it for you. He was modeling it for all of us. And we see the same modeling in the Last Supper. Like when we go and we do communion, Jesus is saying, hey, whenever, whenever you have dinner like this, do it in remembrance of me. He's, he wasn't doing that out of like selfish vanity. There wasn't a Sarah McLaughlin soundtrack playing in the background. No, he, he was doing this out of love for his disciples so that they would remember the sacrifices he made. He was doing it so that they could remember how to love others the way he did. In our vernacular, he was doing it so they could remember what it looked like to be fully alive, so that they too could take those steps to chase after being fully alive in the hope of Jesus. He was intentional in the planning of setting up the entire covenant. He was intentional in, in showing and teaching, saying, hey, see, see how I'm doing this? He was intentional, intentional in reminding them to keep doing it. And he was also intentional in doing things for his disciples. Now, sometimes it can be very mundane. Sometimes intentionality and, and loving doesn't need to look crazy. Sometimes it could just be like, you know what? I'm just going to take this step and I'm going to serve them. Or I'm going to take this step and I'm just going to organize this thing for them. Jesse on the webcast episode this week talked a bunch about serving, just doing dishes, and how that's a way to serve and love people. Go back, watch it if you didn't watch it. We see Jesus doing this even in, chapter, in this chapter in verses 13 to 15. So he sent two of his disciples and told them, go into the city and a man carrying a jug of water will meet you. Follow him. Wherever he enters, tell the owner of the house, the teacher says, where's my guest room that I may eat the Passover with my disciples. He will show you a large room upstairs furnished and ready, make preparations for us there. Now, I always growing up thought this was like crazy. Like, oh, how would Jesus know that there's going to be a person and then they follow the person and it's perfect. And then I go and I do research and basically every single commentary I said was like, oh yeah, Jesus just probably set this up ahead of time. Like, a man carrying water is weird because, like, typically women in that culture would carry water, and so men wouldn't. And so that was just, like, a sign, like, oh, that's, that's the place where I already set up dinner for us. And it was just super practical where, like, Jesus just went and Jesus organized what was happening for dinner. And while it's not as big and emotional as, like, oh, loving the person betraying you, he showed his disciples love by being the one to figure out what dinner plans were. By organizing, they're like, hey, how are we all going to meet? Oh, I'm going to do this. By going and, and setting up um, their, their holiday. By going and, and deciding that, you know what, I'm going to go and set up some sort of time to call each other on Discord on this group call. And even though it sometimes is awkward and maybe nobody will show up, I'm, I'm going to go and put the effort into planning this for the sake of those people that I love dearly. He, he didn't do that. That was, a, it was like a metaphor or like he would do that in our time. Just, just making sure I'm not, I'm not lying. Um, 
But you can see what I mean, church, is that sometimes just the mundane things are in love, and that's how you can show love intentionally. By planning things out and by planning in long form or just by short form how to actually care for people and putting systems in place to love people, by showing them how to love people and by just doing it and serving them. So that's what I got for us today, church. Jesus' love was really, really, really cool. It is unconditional. It is deeply, deeply unfair in, in our favor. And it's intentional. Intentional in planning, in, in showing, and intentional in doing. And so my prayer for us today, church, is that we could, number one, just fall a little bit more in love with Jesus and just appreciate him that little bit more. But also, church, that we could learn to love like Jesus. It's a prayer for me as much as it is for each and every one of you, but that, that we could love each other more like Jesus, that we could love the lost more like Jesus, and that we could actually receive the love of Jesus and receive the love of others as well. Let's pray, church. God, thank you. you you're really cool, God. Um, thank you. Thank you that I even got to come and spend time diving into this passage and, and really unpack it just because I, I appreciate this. And so, God, I pray that I can remember this, that I can learn to love you a little bit more, that I can show people how I can love you a little bit more, and that I can love other people a little bit more as well. And God, I pray that for our entire church. Let us just leave here thinking you're really cool. Yeah, God, that's my prayer. Let us love a little bit more like you. Amen. So we got a question for y'all, and then we also have an activity that we're going to, not an activity, we're going to do communion. Um, so the question will pop up on the screen, and the question is, in response to Jesus' love, how can you be unfairly and intentionally loving to someone this week? So that's the question. But um, before or after, however you want to do it, um, we also want to take time. I mean, I, I preached on the Last Supper today about how incredible is it, it is, that, that blood of the covenant that Jesus did, that he came and, and died, and he came and lived to do that for us. And so let's, let's do what he said and, and celebrate that. And so we're not actually going to do communion on, on the live cast here. Um, it's great. I love it we can, when we can do that. And it's great when the entire church comes and does that. But I think it's also really important that we can do it in our simple churches. And so my call to the church, I kind of made a post, I believe yesterday, maybe Friday. Um, got, hop on a call with your simple church and let your simple church leader lead you through communion today as well. Um, it's, it's really, really cool. Um, if you're unsure, there's a communion guide in the Discord chat, um, probably way back up there. If somebody wants to go and post it again so that people can kind of have it fresh and handy, um, thank you whoever puts that in the chat. Um, and that's all I got for you, church. Be blessed, have a great week, and Jesus loves you. <laughs>